You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. My name is Patty Skinner, and today's reading is from Psalm 29. As you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. A Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare and in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Patty. We're in this summer in the psalm series, and each week we look at a different psalm which teaches us how to worship God in all of the stuff of life. So I'm going to pray as we dig into this Psalm 29. Heavenly Father, we come before you acknowledging that you are enthroned. You are ruling over all of creation forever. Sometimes we don't see you as clearly as we should. Sometimes we don't see you as majestic and powerful. Help us to get this psalm into our hearts today, that we might be transformed to be people who worship you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, This week, um, I took my daughters out, who are twins, by the way, out for their 16th birthday. And it was a real, I know they're like super embarrassed. Nobody, no, nobody's looking at you guys, don't worry. Um, and, uh, and we had a great time. I took them to see Hamilton, uh, the, you know, the, the Broadway play down at the Paramount Theater, which was just awesome, just a great time. And they really enjoyed it. Afterward, we followed it up by going to one of Tom Douglas's restaurants. We went to Serious Pie, which I hadn't been to in a really long time. We got some, it's not pie, by the way, it's pizza, okay? So, East Coast thing. Uh, we got our pizza, it was great. And afterward, we decided we were going to get dessert. And what dessert do you think they might have at Serious Pie? Pie. Yes, they had pie. And it was regular pie, though. It wasn't pizza dessert or something. And, and they had Tom Douglas's very famous, they call it on the menu, world famous, triple coconut cream pie. Anybody here ever had it? I hadn't had it in years. It's great. It's great. Delicious. 
And uh, you might say that this pie was like a little slice of heaven. Yes. I think we've all either heard that or at least said that at some point before. And we don't just use that phrase, a little slice of heaven, to describe really good desserts, right? We, we, we seek little slices of heaven in all the aspects of our lives. It's why some people get obsessive and manicure their lawns, right? We want a little slice of heaven. It's why I installed a brand new permanent water filter in my house and why we're working on building custom desks for our home office. It's why, uh, you know, we put up fences in our yards. It's why we uh, scroll on our phones. We're looking for a little slice of heaven. It's why we decide to marry that person. It's why we decide to have that baby. It's why we take that job, even though it pays a little bit less because it gives us greater fulfillment. We're looking for heaven on earth, which makes sense because that's actually what we were made for. That's the way that things ought to be. And let me just show you really briefly by a, a blast through the first pages of Genesis. Anyone remember the opening words of the Bible? In the beginning, yeah, God created the heavens and the earth. So why did God create heavens and earth? He, he created the heavens as his space. He created the earth as our space. And then in verse 2, it said, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Okay, so you're going to hear echoes of that verse right there in Psalm 29 as we dig into it later. But what it's telling us is that the formless world was a world without order. And then God spends six days following, creating order out of chaos, preparing the earth for life, and for the rule of human beings. And how does he do that? He does that by his word. He speaks. And finally, he designates a place where heaven will meet with earth, where the two will be joined together as one. It's a garden. And he places, he puts a man and a woman there, and we know how the story goes. He places them there to cultivate and to, to rule, and yet they disobey God. They don't work along with Him. They work against Him, and they fall. And ever since, the brokenness that they kind of let in is in all of us, and it's in all of creation. And ever since, we've been trying to return to this state. When we encounter God we experience heaven on earth. And the biggest barrier for us in, to encountering God is when we see human beings as too great and when we see God as too small. When in reality, God's majesty should bring heaven and earth to its knees. That's what Psalm 29 is going to teach us. God's majesty should bring heaven and earth to its knees and not just the places but all of the creatures, all the beings in each place. And so the Christian vision, we've said many, many times before, Christian vision is to see God's kingdom come uh, to earth as it is in heaven. 
And this psalm actually takes us on this cosmic journey from heaven to earth, showing us how the two can be joined together as one. And it starts with worship in heaven. It moves down to chaos on earth, and then finally concludes with worship, which is where heaven meets earth. So let's kind of work through it a little bit. Worship in heaven was found in verses 1 through 2. They said, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Now, if you were here in July, you might remember us discussing the heavenly beings that are mentioned here in verse 1. Now, if you didn't get those messages I would highly recommend going back and listening to Psalm 82 and Psalm 58 because, man, this stuff can get really confusing really fast, okay? So there's a lot to unpack that I'm not going to do here, but just to try and do some sort of a recap, we said that these heavenly beings are really, they're spiritual beings created by God to rule heaven with Him. And in fact, some translations actually render the phrase heavenly beings as sons of God, which is what we saw in those other two psalms. The only distinction, the only difference here, though, is that these are probably holy spiritual beings. They're not fallen spiritual beings like we saw in those other psalms. These may, might be angels, and King David is giving orders to these powerful creatures, and he's telling them to worship God, to ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due His name. And, and when it says his name is worthy of glory, I always want to think name equals personhood. It equals character. And so while God is owed glory because of what he has done, even before God does anything, he is owed glory simply because of who he is. God has revealed himself to us as a God who is merciful, who is gracious, who is slow to anger, who's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who is forgiving, who is also at the same time just, who's all-powerful, who is all-knowing. This is who he is. This God deserves glory. Can I get an amen? amen? Just because of who he is. And he's not only due glory, though. See, plenty of people, right, are due glory. Pl plenty of people achieve great things, and there's some glory that's due to them. But because He is our Creator, He is also due our worship, like verse 2 talks about, our worship. And He's the only one. He is the only one. He's in a category unto Himself, the only being who is truly worthy of worship. And the word here for worship, it literally means to bow down, to just bow down, get on your knees and show the Lord honor and glory and, and surrender yourself before Him. Give Him the reverence that He's, des that he's deserving of. Show that he is worthy of total surrender, total submission. You know, a, a few months ago, my family and I worshipped with some brothers and sisters at a local Catholic church when I was on vacation, just to kind of experience that together. And it was a, it was a really wonderful time. Uh, and one of the things that I really appreciated about them and the way that they did their worship gathering 
was that they have one of those kneelers, I think is what they call them. I don't know if any of you guys have come from that kind of a tradition. But people, you know, multiple times in the service, you're just brought to your knees, right? And I want to say that while we don't have those kneelers installed, and I don't know that we ever will, uh, if you ever feel compelled to bend your knees before the God that we are worshiping, please do so. We got this nice soft carpet here. It's going to be great. But this is a, a very important posture in worship. It's showing that God is worthy of our total self, our total surrender, our total submission. And David is telling the heavenly beings that they need to bow down, that they need to worship God because he is worthy. Essentially, this, this worship is for them also just declaring how majestic, how powerful God is. And think about this. These beings are in heaven. They're in heaven. They're in the presence of God. And they see God's majesty completely unveiled. There's nothing that stands between them and God's glory. They see him as he truly is, which might be hard for us to imagine what that would be like. Just try to imagine it. Yet this is what they were made for. This is what they were made for, to be in his presence, to be worshiping. God made heavenly beings and human beings all for his glory, for his worship. And so this heavenly picture that we're being given here, it's actually what we're aiming for down here on earth. But there's a problem. Because down here, God's majesty is veiled, Right? It is veiled. We've showed you at the beginning how we live in a broken and fallen world and the, the effects of sin both within us and, and without us. It veils the glory of God. His, his glory, it's, it's shrouded both by our own denial of the reality of his existence, but also by the chaos that we see all around us in creation. Here's what I mean. The world, while it is a majestic Place. While it is a beautiful place, it can also be a very dangerous place. Floods, thunderstorms, wildfires, hurricanes, earthquakes, all these things, they make it seem as though the world is just out of control. Make it seem to us as though God's glory, it's shrouded because all of what is going on all around just seems so random. It seems as though no one's in charge, as though all these winds and these fires and these groundswells, they just happen on their own, right? It's as though this is just how the world works, like the, the, the world is some kind of giant wind-up toy that, that was set in motion and it's just going to keep going unless, of course, there's some sort of human intervention that disrupts it, right? But the psalm actually gives a much more fundamental explanation for why these sorts of chaotic things occur. It's not merely the water cycle or the laws of gravity or the weather patterns. It is those things. But more fundamentally, it's the voice of the Lord. It's the voice of the Lord. That's the explanation that the psalm gives. And if we're going to see heaven coming to earth, we will have to reckon with this explanation. Let's look at the chaos on earth, verses 3 through 9. 
The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. So anytime that you get this repetition of words, you got to start to pay attention, right? The voice of the Lord, that phrase in only seven verses, shows up seven times. Of course, a biblical number of perfection. Someone's trying to get our attention. Why? Why is the voice of the Lord the focus? We got to remember, go back to the beginning where God created everything, and what, how did He do it? With His voice, with a word. And in some sense, this psalm is actually responding to this question who is responsible for all this madness, all this chaos in creation? Who is in control? Who is in actual rule and command on the earth? Whose decree is final? Who is the true king? The answer is the Lord, the God of Israel. Yahweh is his name. And the chaos on the earth, it isn't contradictory to his voice. No, it's actually happening. All these things are happening by the powerful voice of the Lord. And in verses 3 through 9, these ones that we've just read, we're continuing this journey down from heaven to earth. Verses 1 and 2 began in heaven, and then verses 3 through 9 progressively bring us lower and lower and lower, starting in the next closest place to heaven, the waters above. Now, ancient Israelites, they saw the sky as this giant firmament that was either holding back or releasing water by God's command. And so the voice of the Lord, it said, is over the waters. You ever been in a terrifying thunderstorm or been near a hurricane when that was happening? The Lord is in charge of the clouds, in charge of the water cycle, the wind, the thunder. Everything that is up above, He is in charge of. But he's also in charge below. And so as we come down from the sky, we're brought to the tops of the tallest trees on the highest mountains in the area. And they seem so strong, these mountains, these these giant cedar trees. They seem immovable, and yet they're broken into pieces, these trees. And, And what about the ground below them? That seems immovable. And yet, even the mountains of Lebanon and Syrian, which is Mount Hermon in Israel, they have earthquakes that make the ground move like jumping calves, it said. And all of it, all of it is brought down, like someone's just shaking a rug, just real nice and easy, nothing uh, too great for the voice of the Lord. And then the psalm takes us lower and lower, and next we see the voice of God flashing forth flames of fire, making lightning strike on the ground. And before uh, 
after that, then we're taken down to the very lowest parts of the earth, down to the desert wildernesses and forests. And there the earth is quaking again. And the forests, they've been stripped bare, it said in verse 9. They've been stripped bare. Perhaps this is from that lightning igniting fires, just like we have during excessively dry summers around here. And I don't know about you, but as I looked at these verses and I, I read these just chaotic things falling apart and exploding and everything, I, I immediately had a picture in my mind, a scene from one of my very favorite films, Inception. Anybody seen it? A couple of you guys? Uh, great film. Incredible. And the sequence is when a dream is collapsing. In the, in the context of the film, there's this idea that you can craft your own dreams. But the problem is when people begin to realize that they're in a dream, everything starts falling apart. So everything that you've created, this mirage, so to speak, begins to just fall apart. Check it out. That is a picture I want you to have in your mind as we read verses 3 through 9. This is what the world feels like at times, right? Feels like things are just falling apart, chaos everywhere. And this is what happens when the voice of the Lord comes down from heaven. And so this psalm is telling us that everything from the highest heaven to the depths of the earth, all of it, belongs to the Lord. He is sovereign over everything. He is the great king who rules over all, and creation obeys his voice. But here's the problem. As we hear these stories of, of you know, natural disasters and, and things on earth crumbling and so forth, we as modern people aren't really all that afraid of these kinds of powerful acts. You know, we, we think in some sense that we've kind of mastered them. Like we are ruling over all of the chaos on earth. I was thinking about how an ancient Israelite would have been terrified of the ocean as see, seeing it as this unconquerable force of chaos and all the wind and the waves and all of it, just how untamed it is. It seemed like this thing that people could never master. And now, what do we got? We've got... Like giant wave surfers, dudes surfing, you know, a hundred foot waves in Portugal, right? We, these, these would be gods in ancient Israel. They would look as though they are masters of creation. Or we think today as modern people, heaven, right? Well, we can go up there. We can fly above the earth and look down on what ancient people would have called heaven. And so the, this way in which we feel like we've sort of mastered creation, gives us this impression that God is really small. It gives us this impression 
that things when they are out of control are showing us that God isn't, that He is not in control. And yet there's this part of us, if we're honest, even if it's subconscious, even if we don't cognitively think it, we realize how small we are, how fragile we are, how finite we are as creatures who are affected by all that happens on earth. I mean, just think about uh, the way in which people are cognizant of climate change and the fear that grows from that. People know that we are not immune to natural disasters. And so sometimes we do feel this absolute chaos that this psalm describes. Sometimes that chaos is very literal, like giant forest fires or tsunamis or earthquakes. Some of you guys were even in the Northwest when Mount St. Helens erupted, right? You know how scary that can be. So sometimes we do experience that chaos like the psalm describes, very, very literally. But sometimes we experience something of this psalm very figuratively, right? There are spiritual forces stirring up chaos on earth, creating political and social disorder. Or we might experience internal, psychological, emotional, relational chaos. The same chaos that the psalm describes as going on out there, we can experience in here because there's brokenness in both places. They both originate from the same thing. Both originate in the brokenness of sin and its effects on earth. But the difference between our hearts and those tornadoes and lightning and, and floods is that they are ultimately obedient to the voice of the Lord. And the question is, will, will we be? While we see creation bowing down before Him, Will we? Will we follow suit? And if this chaos is going on inside of us, and if this is really what things are like on the earth outside of us, is there some way that heaven can be brought back to earth? Is there some way that we can be taken up into that heavenly experience again? And here is where this psalm comes to this massive crescendo. It's finally going to resolve all of this tension that's going on, all of this chaos, and it finds its resolution in a very specific place, and that is in the temple. While everything else is falling apart outside, the people of God come in to meet with Him. And when they do, the praises of heaven finally become an earthly reality. So number three this is where we're wrapping it up. Worship where heaven meets earth. We saw this in the second half of verse 9 through 11. And, all, and in his temple all cry, glory. Would you guys just say that with me? Glory. And the earth sits enthroned, sorry, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And the Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. So we've heard about a lot of different ways that the voice of the Lord brings judgment on the earth, causing all of that chaos everywhere around. But what is the greatest calamity that the earth has faced? What's the greatest chaos that has surpassed all chaos since then? This is alluding to that, the flood, the flood. In the Bible, 
the only time that the Hebrew word for flood is used, apart from this instance right here in verse 10, is all the way back in the flood of Noah in Genesis. And this psalm is echoing that story here where all that havoc, all that destruction of God's judgment finally is and suddenly is interrupted with a rainbow arch of peace. Peace comes over the earth. And how does this peace happen? Well, there's this progression here as well. It begins with this time and place where heaven is meeting earth in ancient Israel. That was in the temple. That was where people met with God. That's where the two places, it was like a, it's like a garden of Eden on earth. And the people of God are meeting with Him together. It's just this amazing picture. And the praises of heaven are taken up by the praises of earth. And all in His temple cry, holy, or sorry, glory. And what's the result of their praise? God is enthroned as King of the earth. It's almost as if this song forms a throne that God takes His seat on. I want you to think of that as we praise Him when we sing to Him together. Think of it as us forming a throne for God to take His seat on. I imagine this happening as as these people are gathered in this temple and heaven is meeting earth. You just picture that image from inception. Everything outside is just falling apart. Chaos all around And his people are in this temple. And while that dream is collapsing, right, outside, they're singing. And they're meeting with God. And it really doesn't matter what's going on outside. It really doesn't matter. God is king forever. Can you picture it? And what does God do from his throne as king? Verse 11, it says, he blesses his people. He blesses them. He blesses them with peace. And peace is this Hebrew word, shalom. Can you guys say that with me? Shalom. And it describes the way that things ought to be. It's literally heaven coming to earth. And what does that look like? Well, your relationship with God is reconciled. You get to be one with Him again, and that just flows out into all aspects of your life. All of your work is successful. All your relationships thrive. There is justice and righteousness and beauty and healing. It's what happens when God is enthroned on the praises of heaven and earth, this shalom peace. It just abounds. God's majesty should bring heaven and earth to its knees. And now I want to show you how all of this connects to Jesus and how none of it means anything to us apart from Him. Jesus is the King of kings who's enthroned forever. He's the one that this psalm is talking about. And you might have noticed at the beginning of this psalm, there's this inscription, a psalm of David And here's the crazy part. Think about this. David was the king of Israel. He was the one who God said his throne would be forever. It was foreshadowing this descendant of David taking the seat of God on his heavenly throne. And so there's this kind of confusing thing that we might have of 
how can David say that God is enthroned as king forever when he's the one who's king? And it's because David's descendant would be the one who would rule forever, who would come down from heaven and up from the earth. This king, Jesus, is the king who is enthroned forever. Another way this connects to Jesus is that Jesus is the God-man who brought God to men, to humanity. At his birth, you might remember the angels mirrored what happens in this psalm. This psalm began with the praises up in heaven, right? These heavenly praises, these beings glorifying God with all the heavenly hosts. And it ends with peace to humans on earth. Does that sound like any Christmas songs you guys have heard? Like, Gloria, yeah, in excelsis Deo. That's the same song that the angels sang at Jesus' birth. You might remember that from Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest heaven, they sang, and on earth peace to those with whom His favor rests. Because of Jesus, the King of all kings, He was bringing Uh, the throne of heaven to earth, and so all these angels just started singing. They're singing this song. And Jesus is, lastly, the Prince of Peace. And why this is important is because Jesus is ending the chaos of sin and judgment by bringing this shalom peace that we all long for. And he isn't doing it by unveiling his glory and shattering cedars and shaking mountains like we heard about in this psalm. No, he brought peace to us by taking all of that outer chaos and destruction, all the chaos and destruction of our sin upon himself. Jesus, the one who was the voice of God in creation, became the place of God's judgment on creation. And at the cross, Jesus was the one who was shattered. Jesus was the one who was shaken by the voice of the Lord. Everything that our sin has wrought on the earth was bottled up in his body and defeated once and for all. And so now, friends, we can come to God through Jesus. And through him, we get to experience peace like never before. And now, unlike the people of Israel, we don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem and go to that temple, right? We get to experience the glories of heaven right here, right now. The Bible says that we are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. We are the place, as as the fellowship of God's people, we are the place where heaven and earth meet. We get to see the glory of Jesus. As I said earlier, that it's hard to understand what God's glory unveiled might be like. But we can know what that's like because we experience His glory unveiled, the glory of heaven through beholding Jesus. I'll tell you a quick story as I wrap it up. Uh, earlier this week, I was with a friend of mine who is an American who's family is living in Canada, and uh, he described to me what so vividly looked like this psalm. He was telling me about all this chaos around him. Uh, he's, his family's been struggling off and on for, for a long time now with 
multiple health problems, different people in the family, major health problems. He's currently dealing with conflict with other people in his church, people who he loves, but he's divided from right now. And his work has gotten more demanding over the course of the last couple years, and yet in spite of all the inflation and the increased expenses everywhere, his actual source of income has been significantly diminished, which is a big deal to anybody, but it's especially a big deal for him because it actually threatens his visa in Canada, and he may have to pick up with his family and be required to leave. But in the midst of all that, picture again that, that scene in Inception. All that stuff is just breaking apart. In the midst of all of that, he told me that his time with his family, it's closer than ever. There, there are times of worship and prayer and singing, both as a family but also as a, as a church community, as they gather with their church community, they're just sweeter than ever. And they're encountering the peace of God in the presence of God through the praises of God. And they're experiencing what we're talking about, heaven on earth. And it's all because they're connected to the Prince of Peace, the King of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. As you meet with your community group this week, if you're still doing questions, here's one question. In what ways is your view of humans too big and your view of God too small? I encourage you to use that as a time of reflection, and I'll pray, and we will respond to God together now. Heavenly Father, we are astounded by the picture that we get of you and your majesty and your power and your reign over creation. And we do confess, as as I've even said in this message, that so often we see you as too small. We've detached ourselves from the realities of your majesty even as you expose yourself, reveal yourself to us in all of creation as, as you do these mighty acts. And even as you have shown us yourself through Jesus and brought peace, God, so often we see you as small and ourselves as great. And we pray that you would humble us, you would bring us to our knees, and along with heaven, we would lift you up in praise, both here as we've gathered today, but also as we go from this place. Help us to worship you in all things. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.